you could argue with support that we human beings are facing two concurrent crises that threaten our ability to even survive long-term on this planet. And it is the uh, climate crisis and the extinction crisis. But both of those crises have solutions. One is in the category of uh, technology, uh, and the other is in the category of natural solutions, technological solutions and natural solutions. We have to use tools to measure impact. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. You just heard author and explorer Rick Ridgway, former Vice President of Public Engagement and Environmental Affairs at Patagonia, identify pathways forward on two defining issues facing leaders everywhere. Esri CMO Mariana Cantor investigates how Ridgway's experiences as a world-class adventurer shaped his views on the balance of business and environmental stewardship. Hi, Rick, and welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. Thank you, Mariana. It's just terrific to be here. It's really my pleasure to join you guys. I'd like to start our conversation with your recently published memoir, Life Lived Wild Adventures at the Edge of the Map. It's a book about your life exploring some of the most remote places on Earth. It's about a lot of discovery of those places and yourself. It's about survival, friendships, relationships, and it's also about our planet Earth. To start with, I'd like for you to try to help us imagine what it's like on top of Everest or K2, which are close to 30,000 feet above sea level with virtually no oxygen. Well, Mariana, you've, as you said, you've read the book and read my description of, of what it's like, but you've also have the book in your hands. And for any listeners who do pick up the book themselves, the front cover is a shot of me on the summit of K2. In 1978, when that was only the third time that climbers had ever reached the summit of the mountain by, by any route, and we made the first ascent without using oxygen, but we also made it, fortunately, on a perfect cloudless, windless day, which on top of K2 or any mountain of that altitude is really rare. As you can see in the photograph, and as I describe in the book, we could see literally for hundreds of, of miles. It was breathtaking. Because there was no wind, we actually were able to stay on the summit for more than an hour. It was 28,250 feet. And I felt like I was in a dream, in a dream state where it seemed otherworldly. And I kept having to remind myself that, no, no, this isn't otherworldly. This is on my own world, on my planet, on top of the second highest peak in the world. And the other thing that I had to keep remembering was that I needed to stay focused on how I was possibly going to get down alive. So we had reached the top, but I knew that, like all climbers know in those situations, getting down is really the hardest and often the most dangerous part. And I know that's perhaps not a very romantic answer to your question, but it's the real one, that I was struggling to appreciate it. I was concerned and focused about how I was going to get down alive. Other than that, it was a pretty good day. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, a clear follow-up. There's so many follow-up questions, but one of them is you describe this affair that is incredibly dangerous. You have to stay alert despite the fact that your limited oxygen is causing this kind of haze. Uh, and you have to shed all your equipment, pretty much. And you do this, and you do it again, and you do other things that are as dangerous, 
what propels you to keep pushing these boundaries to keep putting your life in danger? <laughs> we, we used to tell each other the only qualification to be a good mountaineer is a short memory for pain. Uh, because because it, it is uncomfortable and it, it's often uh, painful and, and it is dangerous. I know shortly after my wife and I married, she found my address book and it's some dark moment, you know, reflecting on how many of my friends I'd lost. I'd gone through my address book and, and wrote dead across dozens of names. And she says, why on earth do you do this? Why are you putting me through this? And it, it's such a hard question to answer because there's so many components to the answer. I mean, one goes back to where it all started for me in my boyhood when I saw an article on the first American ascent of Mount Everest in 1963. And I saw a photograph of that first American to reach the summit, Jim Whitaker, and, and it captivated me as a kid. And I just said, I, that's who I want to be. So there was some instinctual, almost DNA level resonance with the whole idea of climbing. And then as I got into it, I started to discover the joys of tackling a project with a goal of reaching the top that at the outset seemed so unlikely. And the, just the satisfactions of figuring it out, relying on my own skills to pull it off and, and learning deeply about self-reliance. That was a part of it. It was the joys of sharing these experiences with people who had become such close friends. Uh, it was, you know, the opportunity to go to what back in the 70s and 80s were the most remote places on the planet, when many of those places were truly unexplored and, and unknown. Uh, so that was a, another part of it. Uh, it's a complex answer. But when you mix all those things together, for me, it became uh, what my mother would have called an obsession. <laughs> a passion. We'll call it a passion. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. I pick up something new, even after reading your book, that a lot of this is about problem solving. I never thought of that as, as you know, sort of this conquering the, and exploring as well as uh, figuring out how to be self-reliant. I mean, there's uh, very many dimensions to this passion. Well, may, may I comment on that just for a minute? Of course. Because, because you use the word conquer. And in the beginning, that was a big part of it for me. That was connected to that photograph of Jim Whitaker on the summit, holding his ice axe over his head with the American flag tied to it, whipping in the hurricane winds. You know, he had conquered Everest. And that was in the early 60s. I was 14 years old. My father had been through World War II. And this idea of conquering, of, of nationhood, of having the flag on your ice axe whipping in the wind, that was a part of it then. And I grew up with that part of climbing. But then over my lifetime, uh, meeting some really important other climbers that influenced me, like Yvonne Chouinard and Doug Tompkins and a few others, I began to learn from them and from my own experiences that the conquest of it was really secondary. In fact, over time, it became the opposite of what it was about, that it, it was anything but conquest. I remember uh, on that same first American ascent of Everest, there was another climber named Barry Bishop who said, there are no conquerors, there are only survivors. But yet what I really learned what the opposite of conquest was, in my mind, as I started to understand this, was what you got from the process of the whole thing, that, that the real benefits to yourself, to self-realization, to, to self-confidence uh, was 
what you would learn from the process by really understanding that that was the goal. And I developed a shorthand to capture that idea when I tell people that the goal really isn't the summit, it's the footsteps it takes to get there. This is, this is beautiful. And that reminds me again of uh, in some of the crises that you describe. One of the things that you kept telling yourself was one foot after another. It's like it's one step at a time, literally. That, yeah, that, uh, that became another important lesson because that, that's certainly part of the process. And, and in the book, I, I'm hopeful that some of the things I took from the high mountains and brought home to my life at sea level and applied to my daily life, my business life even, that I, I don't explicitly say what those lessons are in the book. I try to uh, avoid that. But rather, I hope that through my own example, I was able to show instead of tell the reader some of those lessons and how I applied them to my life, because I deeply believe that anybody reading this book has the opportunity to take some of those same things that I did from the high mountains and bring them back as I did to their own lives. And so, you know, I'm hopeful that readers could discover some of those things that I did as well. As you say, you were close friends with many notable people. They were your fellow climbers, the founder of Patagonia, you mentioned Ivan Chenard, and the North Face founder, Doc Topkins. Uh, you also climbed with Frank Wells, who was then the president of Warner Brothers, and another successful business tycoon, Dick Bass. So, what I'd like to ask you is, do you think that people who subject themselves to these extreme physical and mental challenges and seek risk, and we'll talk about managing risk, as, he, as you mentioned as well, are also naturally driven and successful in business? Yeah, the two often go together. They certainly did with the posse of friends, some of whom you just mentioned. They were my accomplices in these adventures, Yvonne and Frank and, and Dick and Doug. Yvonne and, and Doug were already well along this path of self-realization that it wasn't the summit, it was the footsteps. Uh, they had taken many of the, of, of the learnings they had made in the wild parts of the world, and they had brought them back down and applied them to their businesses and the way they ran their businesses very successfully. And those experiences had informed both of them to be deeply committed to environmental protection and conservation through their love of wildness, their love of nature, of the, of the wild part of the world. And that became integrated into the DNA of their businesses. Uh, Doug went on to sell the North Face and uh, use the money to partner with his wife to co-found Esprit, the women's wear company, which also had a deep sustainability commitment. And like uh, Patagonia uh, was in business to use business as a a tool for environmental protection, just like Esri does. It's really interesting how similar the DNAs of the companies were. But Frank and Dick were different. Um, you know, as you said, Frank was the president of Warner Brothers Studios, and Dick was an oil and gas tycoon from Dallas. And they wanted to try to be the first to climb uh, the seven summits, the highest peak on each of the seven continents. Uh, no one had done that back then. And they weren't that good uh, at climbing, and they had to reach out to people like me and Yvonne came along on one trip and others of my friends to guide them on these adventures. And we all assumed at the beginning that uh, it was a midlifer for these guys. They were almost 50 and it was all about reaching the summit. And, and sure enough, uh, there were parts of both of those things that were uh, motivating them, 
But through those, the year it took them to climb those mountains, they metamorphosed. Um, and in Frank's case, for example, all the time in the tents with my friends uh, talking about our commitments to conservation and nature, you know, Frank started getting that into his bones. And then he discovered this deep love for the wild parts of the world, the same love all of us had. And he didn't know that going into it. So coming out of it, back home, he got a new job running uh, Disney with Michael Eisner, the two of them as CEO and president, respectively. And Frank started his own environmental NGO called Environment Now. Uh, and then he started to use his wealth, like Jack Dangerman does, to advance conservation uh, and also to develop new models for how conservation could be activated. And then later on, the guy who headed up his environmental foundation joined Arnold Schwarzenegger's administration in California. And they went on to write California's cap and trade bill. And that cap and trade bill was connected directly to the model that Frank had developed for how to protect the environment. And that in turn had a dotted line directly to all the time that we spent together in tents. You, you talk about self-realization for these powerful men. I, I want to go back to your self-realization. For the last 17 years, you were part of Patagonia and you helped lead these initiatives focused on responsible production and environmental sustainability. You're also founding chairman of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, which is the world's largest apparel, footwear, and textile trade organization. And I, I don't know if I read it in your book or heard it in one of your podcasts that you say you have a strong personal resolve to do all you can to protect the wild and rural parts of the world. So what I'd like to know is when did you have this self-realization moment? Can you take us back there and what triggered it? It started even back in the late 80s and early 90s as I was realizing changes going on in front of my eyes in the wild places that I was spending time in on our planet where I was actually beginning to see the glaciers retreat and uh, the patterns of wildlife migrations uh, starting to shift. And as those changes started to accelerate, uh, I was astounded to uh, realize that I was seeing a change in the planet that was of a geologic nature in geologic, usually measured by geologic time in what essentially was human time. And, and that had a profound influence on me as well. So, uh, my mentors, uh, people like, again, uh, mentioning Doug and Yvonne once more, um, they helped guide me on this. Uh, every climb I went on with Doug, he would show up with a, a new list of books for me to read. Um, Doug was really on the, on the vanguard of uh, all of us in his thinking on these challenges that all of we humans face. And, uh, and he taught me a, a lot, both through the reading list and the conversations around uh, the campfire. Then. I had an opportunity in the early aughts to join Patagonia as a full-time employee. Uh, until then, my wife had worked at the company for 20 years, uh, overseeing like you do, it's marketing and communications. She and Yvonne had really been a big influence on advertising, even on the philosophy of advertising. They, they reset what authenticity uh, in marketing re really means. They redefined it. Uh, so I had had a ringside seat at the company since it started in 1973. And then I got an opportunity to uh, come on as a full-time employee. 
I was hesitant to take the job running the company's environmental and sustainability initiatives, which if you're going to have a job, that's probably as good as it gets. But I still, I didn't know if I wanted to work for a company, you know, that was owned in, in, uh, by one of my best friends and my climbing partner. I was sharing my concerns with my wife and, and she said, well, you know, Rick, you, you always tell me you like to, to try new things. So why don't you try something new called having a regular job? So, <laughs> so I, I did. And as, as many of the listeners probably know, uh, like Esri, uh, Patagonia is deeply committed to um, conservation, uh, wildland and wildlife protection. And that part of it was easy for me because I was already well down that path and I had uh, learned a lot from my mentors uh, and learned a lot on my own. But the sustainability part was all new for me. Um, I had to kind of really do my homework and catch up as fast as I could. But one thing I quickly discovered was that there was not any universally accepted tools for measuring uh, the environmental and even social justice footprints of the companies this, in, in our sector, but in any sector, that the tools that did exist uh, were really varied in their effectiveness, uh, and there was no standardization whatsoever. So that realization uh, led to the founding of the Sustainable Peril Coalition with the, the goal of trying to create uh, tools to measure impact. And when I had the idea, I reached out to Walmart and invited them to join us at Patagonia to try and co-found this. And it really, over time, it's really worked. That was a little over 10 years ago when we started that. Uh, the coalition now has over half of all the global production of footwear and, and apparel in its, in its walls, as it were, in its membership. Uh, that means if you go down uh, any city and, uh, in, on the planet, that one out every other person is going to be wearing something made by one of these companies. <laughs> and, and we've developed our tools now. They're called the HIG Index, a suite of measurement tools. The philosophy is just that old adage in business that you can't manage what you don't measure. Uh, these tools are really uh, allowing the members to measure their impact. And, and with that measurement, they're really starting to uh, manage the impact. And the companies uh, that have been using the tools for the longest have now been showing year over year apples to apples, that they're lowering their footprint, they're decreasing their carbon emissions, they're managing uh, their water uh, consumption, they're managing uh, their waste, uh, and they're also doing a better job with uh, social justice indicators as well. Would you say that half of the available marketplace is part of this coalition or this trade organization? How far advanced are, is their adoption of this Higgs index and uh, obviously the, the work that needs to be done once they understand their environmental footprint. How far along are we? Well, everyone is, uh, all the members uh, are at different points in their uh, corporate evolutions with the adoption and use of these tools to manage their impact. The ones that have been doing it the longest, you know, are, are the furthest along and showing the most change too. But uh, recently, we made a very important decision in the coalition to require everybody to use the tools and then not only to use them, but to use them to reduce their impact, uh, you know, over time and with the support of the trade organization. But if a, a member doesn't do that, they're going to get kicked out because the one thing we could not allow was anybody to come in and use us for green cover. They have to come in and really commit. Uh, and we recognize that everybody's going to be different. That commitment has to have 
some uh, allowance for the fact that everyone is in a different position on their paths towards sustainability. So we recognize that, but everybody has to be committed to a path and they have to be committed to change and they have to be committed to improvement and reduction of their environmental footprint and increase of their social justice or they can't stay in the organization and use its tools. The next question I suppose is, you know, why would they do that? What's the incentives? And it's a really cool question because the answer is a moving target. It's, um, it's changing all the time, but it's really changing in a very positive direction. You know, for example, let's just take one driver of the commitment to these companies to commit to sustainability. The fact that equity fund managers are, are using our tools and other tools as screens uh, when they build their portfolios so that a company getting better scores with our assessment tools is now starting to realize that this could affect their stock value in a positive way as long as they're getting positive results and can show with transparency and trust and authority that they're reducing their footprints. And companies are realizing that managing the carbon intensity of their businesses is placing them at an advantage in uh, markets that are starting to price uh, carbon. So if you're doing business in a country or a suite of countries like the EU that starts to implement carbon pricing schemes, if you've been managing the intensity of your carbon, you're at a competitive advantage to your competitor who isn't. The leading companies are realizing that more and more consumers are starting to pay attention to these things and, and vote with their wallets. So uh, there's an incentive uh, there as well. It's exciting and it's not a minute too late. You know, I'm very interested in the process for change, self-change, uh, societal change, and that's what you're talking about. You bring up, uh, you know, really important lessons from your life. It's not been that long ago where there is a lot of complacency, and now there seems to be momentum. What do you think is happening? I think that you could argue with support that we human beings are facing two concurrent crises that threaten our ability to even survive long-term on this planet. And it is the uh, climate crisis and the extinction crisis. And those two crises are really symptoms of another problem. And that problem is the fact that there are too many of us on this planet using too much of the planet's limited resources. But both of those crises have solutions. One is in the category of uh, technology. Uh, and the other is in the category of natural solutions, technological solutions and natural solutions. I think we have to use all those things to solve the climate crisis. And I'm working with an NGO right now called One Earth, oneearth.org. I'm the chair of the group. And we've raised money over the last seven years to fund dozens and dozens of scientists globally to measure how much we need to do in both of those categories, what we need to do and where we need to do it to keep the planet to 1.5 degrees. And it's a, it's a really cool discovery to find out that we can do this with all the tools that are already in the box. And regarding technology, the most important thing we have to do is scale renewables. And to keep the planet to 1.5 degrees, we really need to get that done in 30 years. And that is the principal application and role of uh, technology moving forward. Now on the other part, nature, 
there's good news there too. Because the science that we funded shows that if we scale the protection of natural areas on the planet, that then become carbon sinks, that either stop emitting carbon from our conversion of uh, natural systems into man-made systems, and that if we restore lands that have already been degraded so that they sequester carbon, that preserving nature can be an essential component to keeping the planet under 1.5 degrees. And the other thing we can do, and this requires some technology, is to convert the production of our food from industrial protocols to regenerative practices. And we've also funding science to show where and how we need to do that. So the good news is we can do it. The good news is uh, the science is there to show us how, where to do it, and uh, how fast and when it needs to get done. What role do consumers play in this path to sustainability? Well, the obvious one is what I said before with the ability to vote with their wallets. And and that's really important for all of us to try to judge as accurately as as we can, whether the companies making the goods or services that, that we purchase are really managing their businesses to try to make one of two differences, ideally both reduce their environmental impact and increase their commitment to social justice ideals. So we all, we all have a responsibility to do that. Now, look at Patagonia. Um, it is a leader in this space. Uh, it, it may actually be accurate to call it the leader uh, in uh, a consumer goods company, uh, showing how you can have sustainability and environmental commitments and still be a very successful business. But In our customer surveys, and I've seen these surveys, uh, I know the company's commitment to uh, environmental protection and social justice is secondary in our customers' uh, reasons for purchasing our products. The primary reason is that those products are really built well. They've got the highest quality. We've got a really robust repair system. We'll fix it if it's broken. If they don't like it, they can bring it back and we'll give them something else. All those things we do is what they most appreciate. And then they choose our product uh, because of that primarily, and then secondarily because of our environmental commitments. So what's that mean? Well, it means that we can't rely on customers and consumers to be the main agent for change in pressuring companies to do better. But what we can do, all of us who are consumers, is wear our citizens' hat more strongly. That, I think, is where all of us have the biggest opportunity to make change. Um, Let's just take the one example of climate change and uh, how consumer goods is linked to that. And in Patagonia's case, it would be uh, how the company does everything it can to uh, choose environmentally preferable materials for its clothes. chooses to use recycled polyester so that we don't use new polyester and we don't have to rely on more oil and gas fossil fuel extraction to make that polyester. We use only organically grown cotton, 100%. And the products uh, cost a little more because we have to pay premiums for those things. It's not just the fact that they're made so well and that that has a margin uh, that's added on to it as well. But now let's say that All the countries in the world rallied around this idea that I mentioned before of pricing carbon. You know, what if they uh, 
put a tax on carbon that was sufficient enough that the companies that weren't paying any attention to their carbon intensity, that weren't choosing environmentally preferred materials, that weren't reducing the carbon emissions in their entire supply chain, if there was a, a really high price on carbon and a, and, a, and, a, and a verifiable and dependable way to measure the carbon intensity of those businesses, then the, the products that they make would cost more than the products that Patagonia makes because Patagonia wouldn't be taxed as high. Then the consumer goes in the store and the product that has the lowest impact also has the lowest price. And that would really, of course, be game over, like all products would be made sustainably. So the policy piece is so, so important, but we cannot depend on governments to necessarily pass the policies that we need. You know, it gets, it gets down to us. They're going to do it if the civil societies they represent force them to do it. And who is the civil society? Well, that's us. And we're also consumers. So I'm arguing here that uh, the hats that we all wear as citizens are arguably even more important than the hats we wear as consumers. Rick, thank you so much for being here with us. It was a true pleasure and an honor. Oh, listen, the pleasure and the honor was mine. I really enjoyed this time and uh, I really ad admire your company and, and what you guys have done and the change and difference you've made. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to Rick Ridgway for highlighting how we can collectively move forward in the struggle to create a sustainable world. To learn more about how location intelligence enables sustainability and drives growth, visit esri.com forward slash sustainability.